Uh, please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage for this morning, for the second week in a row, is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24. And let's begin by reading the passage together. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24. Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord is a sl- uh, as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. As an English major, I studied several different genres of literature. And one such genre was Russian literature. I really enjoyed Russian literature, although I don't know if enjoyed is exactly the right word. After all, uh, Russian literature can be pretty bleak. But the thing I liked about Russian literature was that in that bleakness, it tended to depict life as it is. It didn't try to cover up the pain and suffering that goes on in the world. Instead, it made you square it, square, uh, stare it square in the face and struggle with it. Search for answers over it. In fact, I think I've shared this before, but there was this one quote that came from a short story uh, by Anton Chekhov called Gooseberries that spoke about there needing to be a hammer behind the door of every happy man, reminding him that there are those in the world who are unhappy and that he is only able to enjoy himself because the unhappy bear their burdens in silence. I hung that quote on a bulletin board in my dorm room to serve as my hammer to remind me that comfortable as I may be, there are those in the world who are not. And as I wrestled with that concept and what to do about it, it eventually, I think, played an instrumental role in leading me to the gospel. Point being, Russian literature had a profound impact on me spiritually. And with that in mind, I recently dusted off a book I hadn't read since college called A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. It's a book written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which describes what the narrator would consider to be a relatively good day living in a Soviet gulag. The book could be considered somewhat autobiographical. Solzhenitsyn himself had been sentenced to eight years in the gulags for writing a private letter that criticized Joseph Stalin. I've been interested in reading Solzhenitsyn ever since I had listened to this speech entitled A World Split Apart several years ago. I've mentioned that speech a couple of times. It's an incredibly insightful critique of the spiritual vapidity of Western culture, and it's practically prophetic in its predictions of where it would take us. I mean, you really feel like you're reading today's headlines when he says, this is where you're headed as a society. Anyways, I was interested in reading Solzhenitsyn again because the way he talked, he sounded to me like maybe he was a born-again Christian. And I wanted to see how that would come out in his writing. And guys, let me tell you, it didn't disappoint. A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich is mostly concerned about the conditions of the Soviet gulags as presented through the eyes of its narrator, Ivan Denisovich Shukov. However, in the story, you also encounter a character by the name of Alyoshka. Alyoshka is a Baptist who had been sent to the gulags on account of his religious beliefs. 
He's described by Shukov as being a champion of at least one thing, and that was cramming the pages of his handwritten New Testament into a little crack in the wall so tight that it was never discovered during a search. Shukov doesn't agree with Alyoshka's religion, in spite of Alyoshka's pleas. But during the course of the day, he observes two things. He observes that not only is Alyoshka incredibly happy, but that he's also incredibly gentle and kind. He's always doing favors for other people without asking anything in return. At one point, a fellow gang member, a, a former Navy captain, yells at Alyoshka and tells him to hurry up. To which Alyoshka replies by smiling humbly and saying, We can go faster if you like, whatever you say. A meek fellow like that is a real treasure to his gang, Shukov observes. There's a point late in the book when Alyoshka encourages Shukov to pray to God, and the two get into a short debate over religion. Shukov complains to Alyoshka about the hypocritical practices of the priests from the village where he lived. And Alyoshka pleads with Shukov not to talk about the priests, stating that they're not real believers. And finally, Shukov concludes, Look, Alyoshka, I'm not against God, see? I'm quite ready to believe in God, but I just don't believe in heaven and hell. Why do you think everybody deserves heaven and hell? What sort of idiots do you take us for? That's what I don't like. Anyways, he says, pray as much as you like but they won't knock anything off your sentence. You'll serve your time from bell to bell, whatever happens. Alyoshka gives a rather interesting response. He's horrified by the suggestion. He says, that's just the sort of thing you shouldn't pray for. What good is freedom to you? If you're free, your faith will soon be choked by thorns. Be glad you're in prison. Here you have time to think about your soul. Remember that what the Apostle Paul says, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I know Alyoshka is a fictional character, but even still, his example is convicting. You have to think that Solzhenitsyn included him because he knew of at least some Christians in the camps that lived and thought this way. As I thought about this, I found myself asking, how would I respond if I were in Alyoshka's shoes? How would I feel if I were suddenly sent to a gulag on account of my faith? What would I think? I encourage you to pause for a moment and ask yourself that question. Suppose you were sent to a gulag to spend the next 25 years of your life toiling away in a frozen wasteland. Minimum rations, minimal time to yourself, just exhausting manual labor stretching on ahead of you for the foreseeable future, six days a week, and very often seven. When I thought about it, do you know what the first thought was that came to my mind? It was such a waste, such a waste. It wasn't so much fear at the thought of suffering I might experience in the camp that I thought of as much as it was frustration at the prospect of being able to do nothing, make nothing of my life. We only have one life to live. And for me, there's nothing more depressing than the thought of being able to do absolutely nothing with it. You see, I'm an ambitious person. I imagine that might seem strange. After all, if I'm ambitious, then you might wonder why I would ever desire to be a part of a small-town church plant. Generally speaking, you don't get famous preaching to small congregations. And you don't generally build long con large congregations ministering in small towns. The answer is found in the fact that I'm not ambitious in the way that the world defines ambition. I'm not after fame or money or power, which is what the world generally thinks of when they speak of ambition. Personally, I tell you, I think all that stuff is sort of dumb. I checked out of all that a long time ago. I'm not really interested in any of that. No, I'm spiritually ambitious. Which means I'm ambitious for things that the world can't always see, that it can't necessarily quantify. And one of these ambitions 
is to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Again, I only have one life. Since, really, even before I was a Christian, I've been frustrated by the futility of this life and how it seems to make all our work rather pointless. Everything we see in this world, everything we do, is in a sense transitory and impermanent, wiped away by death, save for one thing, and that's the salvation of immortal souls. That's not to say that the things we do in this life may not be remembered in eternity and bring glory to God forever and ever. But in terms of tangible objects that pass beyond this existence into the next, there's only one that seems to last, and that's the soul. That's permanent. And I don't want to spend my life busy producing stuff that's all going to be destroyed in the end. And so ever since I've become a Christian, I've had one overarching desire, and that's to maximize my impact for the kingdom of heaven. And this is where the frustration would come from to be in a position like Alyoska. It's not that the gulag prisoner can't make any kind of impact for Christ. I mean, you think about the conversations that someone like Alyoska can have with a guy like Shukov, and it's apparent that Alyoska is serving in an incredibly unique mission field. That said, it's still a very limited mission field. All you have are a few minutes a, a day to talk with your fellow gang members, and after they've rejected the gospel, there's really no one else you can go to. You're just stuck with your work, the toil of your hands. It makes me wonder, is Alyoshka's perspective the right one? He tells Shukov, don't pray for your release. Freedom will only choke out your faith with the cares of the world. Here you get to tend to your soul. Is that the right way to look at things? Once again, our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 7, 17-24. And our topic for the second week in a row is ambition. Specifically, spiritual ambition. That's the issue that Paul seems to be addressing at this point in this passage. The Corinthians are a spiritually ambitious people. It's an ambition that's not always driven by pure motives. Much of it seems to be expressing itself in a kind of spiritual competition. Basically, they desire praise from men, praise from one another, from their fellow church members. But that said, it's spiritual ambition nonetheless. These are Christians who are trying to become the absolute most they can be in Christ. At this point, the way they think that's expressed is through a kind of asceticism, meaning they think it's expressed through a kind of self-denial, specifically a physical self-denial. Or at least that's what the Corinthians in chapter 7 think. The Corinthians in chapter 6 seem to be on the other side of the spectrum. They think their spirituality is expressed through their indulgence of their physical flesh, specifically sexual immorality, that this demonstrates their understanding of the freedom they have in Christ. As I pointed out in past messages, both sides seem to be driven to these conclusions by a belief in the inferiority of the body. The group in chapter 6 believes that because the body is bad and passing away, you can simply use it and abuse it. Again, they think this is a demonstration of their spiritual wisdom, their knowledge. They know better than to think that you should be concerned about what you do with the body. This group in chapter 7, though, has come to the exact opposite conclusion. They've come to the conclusion that because the body is bad and passing away, then knowledge, spirituality, is expressed by denying its cravings and living in light of this future expected spiritual state. For the past two chapters, Paul has been attempting to not only correct this misunderstanding, but to spell out the implications of this corrected understanding as well for each of these two groups. For the first group, he explains... Actually, it does matter what you do with your body because the resurrection means that Christ has redeemed your body. Specifically, he explains you need to avoid sexual immorality, reason being sexual sin, uh, specifically prostitution. It takes the body and essentially places it in service to someone other than Christ 
when your body has been redeemed in order to serve Christ? This only raises questions for the second group. Again, they're writing to Paul saying, verse 1, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Only the reason they're saying that is because they think the body is bad. Paul has just explained that the problem with sexual immorality is that it's taking the members of Christ, this body that Christ has redeemed for his purposes, and placing it into the service of someone else. And this is not only going to make it seem as if this still means that that sex is wrong, uh, but they're just going to think that it's wrong for a completely different reason than what they first anticipated. They thought sex to be a part of this inferior earthly state of existence. And Paul has just told them, actually, it's a matter of dedication. The body needs to be dedicated to Christ alone. This raises a whole host of other questions that revolve around the permissibility or at least the wisdom of sexual relations with one's own spouse. After all, if sex with a prostitute is wrong because the body is to be dedicated to Christ alone, well, then what about sex with one's spouse? What if they're an unbeliever? For the past 16 verses, Paul has been addressing these questions for the Corinthians. He's told them that sex with one's spouse isn't wrong, quite the opposite, actually. It's actually helping their spouse keep their body in Christ, so to speak, by helping them to avoid sexual immorality. Even in the case of the unbeliever, it may not be that they're helping the unbelieving spouse use their body for Christ by staying engaged in the relationship, right? Since the unbeliever isn't even attempting to serve Christ with their body. But even still, by staying engaged in the relationship, including in its more physical components, they're serving as a witness to the gospel, which may even end up being instrumental in bringing their unbelieving spouse to repentance, to salvation. And this leads us to this morning's passage, where Paul issues what I think you could say is the central theme or summary of the entire chapter, which is remain as you are. That's the theme of the entire chapter. In fact, if you notice, three different times in this passage, Paul makes this admonition. The first time is in verse 17. He opens the passage by saying, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. The admonition comes again in verse 20. He says, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Paul then concludes the passage by repeating the admonition once again. Verse 24, he says, So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the basic idea that Paul is trying to communicate at this point. This second pro-asceticism, anti-sex group is trying to maximize their dedication to Christ as an expression of their spiritual ambition. They're trying to become the absolute most that they can be in Christ, which they think requires some fundamental change in status. Uh, Chiefly, they think that if they're married, they should become unmarried. Essentially, they should divorce, since based on what Paul has just said, they need to keep themselves, they cannot keep themselves from their spouse. And Paul is telling them, slow down. Freeze. Don't do that. Just remain exactly as you are. You don't have to change anything. In this morning's passage, he's explaining why this is so. Why they don't need to change anything. Or at least he's explaining one of the reasons. As we get further into chapter 7, I think we'll see Paul is going to spell out some additional ones as we go. But here he's giving one major reason, and if I could put it this way, that reason is because such changes are unnecessary to fulfill the Corinthian spiritual ambitions. These changes are unnecessary to fulfill their spiritual ambitions. It's like I explained in last week's message. There are actually two different types of spiritual ambition. There's what you might call an ambition to do. This is the kind of ambition I described just a moment ago when I said that I want to spend my life making an impact 
for the kingdom of heaven. It's an ambition to accomplish something on God's behalf for his glory. And then there's also what you might call an ambition to be. That would be sort of like this ambition for fame or money or power only in a spiritual sense. It's an ambition to attain to some position of status, to be great. As I explained in last week's message, the Bible really never discourages either kind of ambition. Quite the contrary, it encourages both of them. Even this ambition to be, it encourages this sort of ambition by promising the Christian that in heaven they will be rewarded in proportion to the way that they lived here on earth. It uses that kind of ambition to fuel the believer's obedience. It tells them your labor is not in vain. There is some kind of compensation that you'll eventually experience for your work here on earth. So the Bible doesn't discourage either of these types of ambition. It just discourages the idea of making a direct connection between the two. Meaning it tells us that we shouldn't think that we'll be rewarded on the basis of what we do or produce for God. It says that instead we'll be compensated according to our faithfulness. The Corinthians are ambitious in this second sense. They're trying to be great. And they're thinking that this naturally requires some kind of change. If greatness is expressed in one's faithfulness, one's dedication to Christ, well then, that naturally requires divorce. Because only the single are totally dedicated to Jesus Christ in both body and soul. Paul is telling them, no, stop, that's not true. You can still be dedicated to Christ without doing all that. You can fulfill your spiritual ambitions just the way you are. And then in this morning's text, he's explaining why this is so. In fact, the repetition of this admonition to, quote, remain in the condition in which you are called, even seems to provide a framework or outline to this passage. In verse 17, there's this general admonition to remain as you are. That's the heading of this passage. The next two repetitions of this admonition then each serve to summarize a reason explaining why this change is unnecessary. I want you to look here. Watch this structure. Paul goes, question, command, question, command in verse 18. He says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. And then he gives the reason for this command. He says, for, there's your explanation, for, Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Conclusion, verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. The same structure then repeats again in verses 21 through 23. He goes, question, command, in verse 21, for, and then an explanation in verses 22 and 23. Conclusion, verse 24, so brothers, meaning in summary, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So that's what we're getting in this morning's text. Paul is explaining why these types of changes are unnecessary. He's explaining just why exactly the Corinthians can fulfill their spiritual ambitions in their present state. The first reason we looked at last week, and that's because dedication is expressed in obedience, not status. Dedication is expressed in obedience, not status. Again, the Corinthians understand that what matters is one's dedication to God, that this is how they live a life that's pleasing to God. They think that this requires some kind of a change in their status. Paul is saying, actually, it doesn't, because what matters to God is obedience, not status. He points to circumcision as an example. The circumcision, of course, was a sign of the Jews' separation and dedication unto God. It signifies a, a person's membership in the people of Israel and participation in the Abrahamic covenant. However, as the un Old Testament unfolded, in, in fact, I think you might even be able to say as early as the Mosaic covenant and the giving of the Ten Commandments, God indicates that what really matters to him is not some mere profession of dedication as indicated through some external mark or something like that, but actual dedication as expressed through obedience 
to his commands. And again, we talked about this some last week. You have all these passages, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old as well, which indicate that what God truly desires is a heart that's dedicated to him, which is ultimately expressed through one's obedience. We further saw this is an obedience that comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is not given by virtue of one's descent from Abraham or through their direct participation in the Abrahamic covenant, as indicated by the marks of circumcision. That's a gift that's given, rather, by grace through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And this means that Jew, non-Jew, it really makes no difference in the end. Literally, anyone can be a recipient of this gift that transforms a person into a worshiper of God. There's no change that's needed. A person mustn't become Jewish in order to receive it so that they can be dedicated to God. All they must do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said last week, if there's anyone who would understand this point, it would be these Corinthians. They understand the importance of the Holy Spirit. They believe themselves to be recipients of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. They didn't change anything about themselves in order to receive this gift. In fact, some of them even think themselves as especially spiritual because they still continue to do absolutely nothing to receive this gift. So if anyone should be able to understand this point, that a change in status is not required to earn favor with God because dedication is expressed through obedience. And obedience is both received and expressed independent of one's status. Then it would be the Corinthians. And Paul's whole point is to say it works the same with marriage. The unmarried are not necessarily any more dedicated to God than the married. What matters is one's obedience to God. That can be expressed both within marriage, as one serves their spouse with their body on Christ's behalf, and that for the honor and glory of Christ. Or it can be expressed outside of it, as one uses their body to serve Christ alone. It doesn't really matter in the end. And so there's no need to change in this sense. You can achieve this dedication just exactly as you are. Paul continues his argument in verses 21 through 24. There we discover the second reason why a change in status is not necessary to fulfill one's spiritual ambitions. And that's because dedication is a matter of perspective, not status. Once again, dedication is a matter of perspective, not status. Paul says, were you a slave when you when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In some ways, this passage almost serves as a repetition of the first or if not an exact duplicate, it at least builds on the idea that Paul established in verses 18 through 20. If what matters to God is obedience, if obedience is expressed through faithfulness, then it shouldn't really matter what position one occupies in the world. All that matters is that they do whatever they do to the glory of God. I tell you, this is most especially true If dedication is a matter of the heart first and action second, which again is what we find in the Old Testament. God tells Judah in the book of Isaiah, he says, I I loathe your sacrifices in, in vain. Do you worship me? Because I know, he says, I know that your hearts are far from me. It's all hypocrisy, he says. And for this reason, he ultimately condemns that people because While they expressed a form of worship, it was still absent of any sincere devotion to God. Of course, this is an accusation that Jesus repeats in the New Testament. It even served as the basis of the Sermon on the Mount. What God desires is this true inward devotion, he said, this devotion which again only comes through the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus alone can grant. So if that's the case... 
Then what matters less is the external action of the Christian and more their intent. Now, of course, this isn't, this isn't to say that intent is all that matters. Uh, you can lie, for instance, with the very best of intentions, but it's still a lie. And that lie still dishonors God by contradicting his character. Whenever a person's actions contradict the character of God, they sin against God regardless of their intent. So again, this isn't to say that intent is all that matters. It's just to say that you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, and it's still not pleasing to God. I mean, unbelievers do this all the time, right? They perform relatively good actions, but for purposes that are not aimed for the glory of God, meaning they do not worship, and in this sense, their actions are not pleasing to God. What makes a matter pleasing or displeasing to God is the intent with which it's pursued. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, speaking actually on the subject of marriage and speaking in response to those who want to make the same assertion that the Corinthians are making here that sex is inherently bad, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He says, For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Listen, in the same way, if the slave does what they do for the honor of Christ, then their slavery becomes pleasing to Christ by virtue of the intent behind their actions. And conversely, if the freedman does not use their freedom to honor Christ, then their freedom is displeasing to Christ by virtue of the intent behind their actions. It's all a matter of perspective. You see Paul spell out this point here. He says, verse 21, Were you a slave when called? Not be concerned about it. He says, it's okay. It doesn't matter in the end. For, he explains verse 22, He who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. The word called there is referring to the moment when the Christian believed through the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, whatever position you were in when that took place is just fine. Because the slave, though bound to a human master, is still free to serve Christ in their position. Nothing is limiting them. And likewise, the freedman, though free from a human master, is still bound to serve Christ in their position. Listen, that's, that's just another way of saying that they are both equally free and at the same time bound in their current state. They're both free in the sense that no one is preventing them from serving Christ. That much is perhaps obvious with respect to the freedman who has no one telling him what to do. But it's equally true of the slave as well, who can perform the service that he gives to his master as an expression of his great esteem for Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Colossians 3, 21 through 24, actually 22 through 24, he says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So both the slave and the freedman is free in the sense that no one is preventing them from serving Christ. And in the same way, they are both also bound in the sense that they are each obligated to serve Christ. Again, the slave's bondage is somewhat obvious. What's less obvious is the freedman's bondage. He appears free, and yet the reality is that like the slave, his life was actually purchased by the blood of Christ, and so now he exists under an obligation to glorify Christ with his life. Meaning, if he doesn't perform any kind of change in, in status... He doesn't have to do any of that uh, to make himself any more dedicated to Christ. He doesn't have to become a slave or anything like that, since Christ already owns all of him. At the end of last week's message, I said that this passage should encourage those of you who already are spiritually ambitious, since it shows you that you can achieve 
all your ambitions just exactly where you are. And then if you remember, I said, again, at the end of this message, I said, but suppose you lack that kind of ambition. I said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to you next week. It was this last point that I was thinking of. I think it's very common for Christians to think that their lives are more or less their own to spend how they please. Going back to this phrase I mentioned at the beginning of last week's message, this phrase that I think many of us would say encapsulates what we believe is so great about our country, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's how we interpret our freedom. We believe that freedom means that we're free to pursue our own ambitions. That's how we interpret our freedom as Americans. That's what we think freedom is for. And then we bring that mindset into the church. This is often true even respect to the freedom we receive in the gospel. Like the the Corinthians of chapter 6, we interpret freedom to mean freedom from the penalty of sin only, freedom from any kind of law over us, and this so that we can do whatever we want. And God, of course, well, he's just there to help us pursue those desires. We choose the career we want, the spouse we want, the home we want, We're free to pursue it all according to whatever pleases us. And then when something gets in our way, well, that's when we call on God and ask him to help us out. That's really not how our freedom works. I feel like I've said this quite a bit lately, so I won't try to hammer on this point too much once again, but what the gospel actually proclaims is that we've been free not only from the penalty of sin, but also, I think to some degree, you could even say primarily from the power of sin. And this so that we might serve Christ. We've been set free to pursue his ambitions, not our own. And that's what Paul is reminding us of here. If I could put it this way, the idea is not just that all stations can be redeemed for Christ, but that they therefore must be redeemed for Christ. Do you understand one of the implications of this passage is that no one can make an excuse. No one can say, well, I can't serve Christ. After all, I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. No, not only can they serve Christ in any position that they're in, but actually they must. Christ has redeemed them for this purpose. They're obligated in this sense. The problem that I think many of us have is that our freedom causes us to forget this. This idea of obligation, of being bound to do what someone else tells us to do, it's so far from our minds. Our freedom is so second nature that the notion that our choices might actually be limited in Christ, that we might even be bound to do something on Christ's behalf, it never even crosses our mind. I don't just mean that in the sense that there are some things that we can't do because they're sin. I think we're all aware, perhaps I think even overly sensitive to that. Rather, what I mean is just like what Paul has been communicating to us us since the beginning of chapter 6. Lawfulness aside, there are some things that are not just lawful, but that are profitable unto Christ. And as servants of Christ, we are not only free... We are also, in some respect, bound to pursue those things as servants of Christ. You know, I'm not just free to serve my spouse with my body. I'm also bound to. I'm not just free to remain married to my unbelieving spouse. I'm also bound to. And why is that? Not necessarily because it serves my ambitions, but because it serves Christ's, and I'm a bond servant of Christ. That's a completely foreign concept to many of us. Again, I think it's why we tend to see passages like verses 8 through 16 so completely backwards. We're accustomed to thinking according to what I'm free to do, not according to what I'm bound to do. And in this sense, I think Algoshka is right. We've already seen there's no need for the Christians suffering in the gulag to pray for their freedom, at least not if their desire is to be more pleasing in God's sight, more dedicated to Christ, because they can serve Christ just exactly where they are. 
Every time someone tells Alyoshka to hurry up, and Alyoshka responds by smiling and saying, we can go faster if you like. Every time he does favors for others in the camp without expecting favors in return. And every time he does this, so that Ashukov might look at him and think, a man like that is a real treasure to his gang. He's only building up more and more reward in heaven. He doesn't have to change anything. He can pursue all his spiritual ambitions just exactly where he is. So freedom isn't needed in this sense. In fact, he's doubly right. And that there's probably a sense in which freedom can even hinder one's devotion to Christ. Yes, it's more than possible that one's faith will only be choked out by the cares of the world when they have their freedom. Yes, forced servitude in a gulag can give a person time to think about their soul and thus improve their dedication to Christ and increase their reward in heaven. There are, perhaps, fewer temptations to draw the Christian away onto something other than Christ in that kind of an environment. As many people will tell you, suffering is often one of the best instruments that God can use to remind a Christian that their only hope is in Jesus Christ. It not only reminds them of their need and makes them dependent on God, it also reminds them that there's only one lasting joy in the life of the Christian. And that's the joy they find in knowing Christ. Everything else changes. Everything else can be taken away. So Yoshka's right in this sense. But does this necessarily mean that a Christian shouldn't pray for their freedom? Is all change really bad? Or to put it another way, does this notion, does this notion that dedication is a matter of perspective, not status, does it mean that all stations truly are equal in Christ, that one is not better than another, in the sense that one should not be preferred over another? And this is where I think this passage gets sort of interesting. Like I said, in some ways, this section of this text almost serves as a repetition of the previous one, or that it's at least the logical extension of the previous section. In this previous section, Paul said that dedication is expressed in obedience, not status. Therefore, one could say it's just a matter of perspective. As long as someone chooses to use their station in life to serve Christ, then they can use their station to serve Christ wherever they are. Change is unnecessary. However, this isn't completely true. This doesn't appear to be an instance of Paul just repeating himself. And I say this because of the statement that occurs at the end of verse 21. Where after Paul says, Were you a bondservant were called, do not be concerned about it. He then says, But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. I think this statement highlights a completely different concern that Paul has in mind here in verses 21 through 24, than what he had in verses 18 through 20. If I could put it this way, yes, slaves generally had a lower status in the Roman Empire than freedmen, right? That's not to say they were as low as what you and I might be inclined to think. Uh, there are actually some fascinating concepts to consider regarding the status of slaves in the Roman Empire that I'd love to go over with you if we had time. Uh, they were not as low as what you and I might be inclined to think. Uh, still, that said, they were slaves. Meaning, at least as far as their treatment under the law, they didn't enjoy the kind of protections that a freedman might have been able to enjoy. They were low in this sense. But what this phrase starts to show us, and even this additional statement in verse 23, where Paul exhorts the Corinthians, you are bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. What it shows us is that this concept of status is actually less of Paul's concern in this section. In verses 18 through 20, I think you could say that the issue with circumcision is the kind of preferential treatment a person might receive on account of their status. They are more favored by God than not on account of their circumcision. That's what the ascetic might think in regards to sexual abstention. They think that refraining from sex is inherently more pleasing to God. 
Paul's concern, though, since the beginning of chapter 6 has been about dedication. Not just favor, but one's ability to give themselves completely to Christ. If you remember, he says, this is the real problem with sexual immorality. It's not ascetic, like what the Corinthians think. It's about who has control over the Christian's body, who is master over it. In fact, if you notice, at the end of chapter 6, Paul even repeats this statement that we encounter here again in verse 23. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. That was Paul's concern with sexual immorality. The Corinthians thought it might have produced an inferior status. Paul says, actually, it's really a matter of mastery. It's a matter of who is in control of your body. And what Paul is trying to explain here through this illustration of the slave and the freedman is that whether a person is enslaved or not, either way, they can still be in service to Christ. And in case you're missing the point, because I think this passage can seem sort of like an odd statement to make in the middle of a chapter on marriage. So in case you're missing the point, the married person is being compared to the slave in this passage. The single person to the freedman. The married person has obligations to their partners. Obligation which may lead them to think that they need to be divorced in order to serve Christ. Paul's answer is to say it's a matter of perspective. Even the slave, though bound, is still free to serve Christ if they pursue their enslavement to the honor and glory of Christ. He's saying it's the same way with your marriage, so don't change. Don't divorce your partner. You're able to glorify Christ just exactly as you are. In other words, when Paul is dealing with this idea of status down in verses 21 to 24, he's thinking of it less in terms of whether or not there are some positions that might automatically make a Christian more pleasing to God than others, which was more of his point up in verses 18 through 20. And he's thinking about it more in terms of the Christian's freedom to serve God. If the issue is obedience, if that's how spiritual maturity or advancement is expressed then the question is does someone have to be more free in order to be in complete dedication to Christ again this is the question he's already anticipating that the Corinthians are going to ask if sex means what you say it does then does that mean I need to divorce my spouse in order to be more dedicated to Christ and of course Paul's answer is to say no you can remain as you are you don't have to change your status from God's perspective, even the slave is already absolutely free to serve Christ. They're actually no more enslaved than the freedman is. They are both equally free and equally bound. Well, if that's the case, then does this mean that freedom should really be irrelevant for the Christian? I mean, can you see how this is putting Paul on the horns of a dilemma? He's trying to explain that a person doesn't need to change their status in order to be more pleasing to God, but in the process, he's almost making it sound like our freedom doesn't really matter, that there's really no difference in the end between slavery and freedom for the Christian. And that doesn't work towards this point either. The whole idea behind his exhortation against to sexual immorality is that we should not be enslaved to anyone or anything other than Christ. So how can he then turn around and say, but you know, of course, literal bondage to another human being, that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that, which is sort of what he's implying with this illustration in verses 21 through 24. And so what Paul does is he explains this idea that dedication is ultimately a matter of perspective, not status. See, let's lose this little exception. This exception which indicates that by this he is not saying that slavery is just as preferable as freedom for the Christian. It may not be wrong to be a slave, but that's not to say that freedom is not without its advantages either. 
If I could frame it in light of this ambition to do versus this ambition to be. As far as what it takes to be great in God's eyes, they're both the same. All one that must do is, all they must do is obey. And this can be done in whatever position the Christian is in. But as far as what it takes to do something for God, in terms of what is most profitable, they're not the same. It's better to be free. Or to set the meaning of this illustration in its context, it is better to be single than it is to be married. That's what Paul means up in verse 7 when he says he wishes that everyone could be as he is. It's what he means when he says in verse 8 that to the unmarried it is good for them to remain single as he is. That's what he's going to continue to say through the rest of this chapter. There really is a sense in which singleness is better or more advantageous in some respect than marriage. It's just not better in the sense that it's inherently more pleasing to God than marriage is. And in this sense, I think that our good friend Alyoshka is actually quite wrong. Yes, there are some disadvantages to freedom. There are some unique challenges that the free Christian faces spiritually that the enslaved Christian does not. And of course, I don't just mean that literally in reference to some form of actual bondage. I mean that in the sense that Paul means here with respect to things like marriage and singleness. There are most definitely some disadvantages to singleness, right, which the married Christian doesn't encounter. But all the same, freedom is still generally better than slavery. You were bought with a price, Paul reminds us in verse 23, so do not become bondservants of men. Listen, this is one of the governing principles, not just for the Christian, but even the Mosaic law. It's what James referred to refers to as the law of liberty. We have been set free from our bondage in Egypt to be holy unto the Lord, and so we should not ever willingly return to our bondage to place ourselves in bondage to anyone else. This means that while most certainly we can be content in whatever circumstances the Lord places us, just in terms of our ability to be pleasing to the Lord, at the same time, we should still desire our freedom and even seek it if at all possible. All in all, I think this passage should prompt us to consider at least two questions here this morning. Firstly, I think it's worth considering How am I currently using my freedom in Christ? How am I currently using my freedom in Christ? There are some advantages that the free Christian has that the one in bondage does not get to enjoy. Now, we haven't discussed what those advantages are just yet. We'll get into that in a couple of weeks as we explore what Paul says in the rest of this chapter. He'll explain what advantages the free, or in this case, the single Christian has. And just so as a heads up, it's probably not what you think it is. Like I would think that the advantages that I have versus what an Alyoshka might have sitting in the gulag would have to do with the impact that I can make for the kingdom of heaven. I can decide to pick up and go to the other side of the world for the sake of the gospel and proclaim the gospel there. Well, Alyoshka can't. It's actually not the advantages that Paul has in mind. Or if I could put it this way, even though Alyoshka is wrong, that doesn't mean that I'm right. <laughs> I'm right in that I should want to be free, but not for the right reasons. Paul has different reasons in mind. There are different advantages that he's thinking of than I am. What are those advantages then? Again, we'll touch on this more in the next couple of weeks. In the meantime, I'd have you at least consider that all of you enjoy currently, presently, a level of freedom that other Christians don't get to enjoy. In fact, if you stop and think about it, you can even enjoy different levels of freedom. I think you see it even on display within this very congregation. Some of you are more free than others. Some of you have fewer obligations to men than others. Who might that be? Well, in the context of this passage, I'm talking about single people, right? Some of you are single, and Paul would say that you actually enjoy a greater measure of freedom than those of us who are married. Just so you know, I don't think it stops there. If we had time, I think we could see that this notion of freedom and bondage extends beyond the marriage relationship and that in light of this, there are all levels of different 
uh, different levels of freedom being experienced in this congregation. So how are you using that freedom? Or if I could put it another way, what is your perspective on that freedom? Do you see it as something to be used for yourself, to pursue your own ambitions, or do you see yourself instead as a bondservant of Christ whose freedom has been granted to you so that you might use it to serve Christ? The Corinthians aren't wrong in at least one respect, and that's in this desire to make themselves completely dedicated to Christ. They might be wrong in thinking they need to be free in order for this to happen, but they're right in wanting to be excellent in their devotion to Christ. They're right in wanting to be undistracted by any other desire or obligation. Is that your desire? Or are you wasting your freedom? Is your freedom just another form of bondage, meaning, though free, are you undevoted to Christ? Second, but related to this point, I think it's worth considering who or what are you currently enslaved to? Who or what are you currently enslaved to? And depending on your answer, what steps might you be able to take to gain your freedom? Again, we don't don't have time to dig into that today, but I think it's worth taking this principle regarding freedom and how it's actually better to be free than to be in bondage and to extend it out into other areas of our life and consider how else might this kind of bondage be expressed and what steps might I be able to take to gain my freedom? Again, in the end, Alyoshka is wrong. No, you don't need to be free in order to be pleasing to Christ. Yes, the Christian can be completely devoted to Christ while sitting in the gulag. And in that sense, freedom is not necessary for the Christian. Still, to say it's not necessary is not to say that it isn't still preferable. Freedom is still better than bondage. So maybe ask yourself this question. If you're married, maybe even talk about it with your spouse on the way home. Consider, what does it mean to be a slave to men? What might Paul be thinking of there when he says that? And then ask yourself, in what ways might we be bound to others? Are there any ways we might be able to free ourselves of this commitment? I'd encourage you to even consider what advantages might we be able to gain spiritually if we were to do that? And in case you're wondering, the answer to that question has to do with this idea of devotion. Again, we should all be seeking to make ourselves the most devoted we can be in Christ. Our status may not necessarily prevent that devotion, but again, as Paul is going to show us, that doesn't mean that there aren't still some advantages to one position over another in this respect, with respect to our devotion to Christ. So how might gaining your freedom serve as an advantage in your devotion to Christ? I want to close our time together this morning with a reading from Colossians 2, 16 through 3.11. We actually read this passage as part of our worship last week, but considering our topic here this morning, I think it's worth reading again, and I hope with fresh eyes now. In this passage, the Colossians are being influenced by a party similar to the one in Corinth. It's wanting to say that there are some forms of asceticism that are truly spiritual, truly wise. And after explaining that Christ alone is all we need to be spiritually mature, Paul says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by this by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God if with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world why is if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations do not handle do not taste do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, 
that they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray.